This is Abigail Favalli, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Culture. Well, I'm here in the studio today with Professor Pickell. I like to say it that way because it sounds like like you could be a character in Clue mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. There is actually a, um, a Professor Pickell. You, you have kids in um, Wayside. Oh, really? The Wayside stories. Yes. He's kind of a wacky character who hypnotizes people. And his name is actually Pickell, but everyone calls him Professor Dr. Pickle. Pickle. Yeah. Which happens. Yeah. I was going to say, you know. We're, we're teaching together next semester, mm-hmm. which will be fun in honors. And already some of the honor students were like, it's Professor Pickle. And I was like, no, <laughs> it's Pickel. And they're like, you know, we're going to. I'm like, OK, fine. So at some point, right, I'm sure That's that right. you've, yeah. you've dealt with this your entire life. Before. Yeah. It'll happen again. OK. <laughs> well, I'm excited to have you in the studio. You are a theologian, an ethicist. And one of your areas of expertise is death. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about death today. Mm-hmm. And I hope it will be edifying and fun and also serious. I'm not actually sure what's going to happen, but um, I you guess. You never know yeah. what's going to happen when, when you talk about death. It's always fun. My um, my dissertation advisor, about halfway through as I was writing, started introducing me as the death guy yeah. every time we were in an <laughs> academic setting. And that always, you know, it set things up for an interesting conversation one way or another. The death guy, Dr. Mm-hmm. Death. Oh, yeah, no, exactly. not that, oh, yeah, right? No. Isn't that what they call Jack Kevorkian? Yeah, Dr. Kevorkian. Okay, well, maybe we'll talk mm-hmm. about Dr. Kevorkian, right? So I guess one way to jump in, I think I would like to hear kind of your, um, I guess, sense of American culture right now in terms of our attitude toward death. Like, how would you describe it? How, yeah, how is yeah. death thought of and dealt with in, in America? Mm-hmm. When it's thought of and dealt oh. with, which is actually kind of a big, you know, thing yeah. as people think about culture and how it relates to death and dying. I mean, one of the sort of, um, things that's been remarked upon by a million people is that generally in the West and in America, we don't like to think or talk about death in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, tend to put it out of mind as much as possible, um, which means that sort of for many of us, when we reach the end of life, if we're sort of dealing with the decisions that ultimately come or thinking about how our, how we're going to care for our family members, the first discussion that happens is kind of at a crucial point of decision, which is, which is not always a, a good wow. time to have the conversation. But, um, you know, just broadly in our culture, I think there's this interesting phenomenon for, for a long time, it was said in our culture that death was taboo, Hmm. um, that it was something you didn't really talk about. And this all really began to change with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and what came to be known as the death awareness movement. She wrote Hmm. this book, uh, sort of foundational book on grief. Um, And this was in sort of the 1960s, 1970s. Things began to come out in the open a little bit. And now, you know, there are bestsellers about death and dying. Atul Gawande is being mortal. Paul Kalanithi's When Breath Becomes Air. You get movies dealing with end of life issues more and more. So Hmm. there's a sense in which the the sort of taboo nature is maybe lessening. Um, And yet there's, I was thinking about this um, recently, there was a famous sociologist named Jeffrey Gorer, who wrote an article in the 1950s called The Pornography of Death, in which he was sort of making the argument that the way Victorian societies dealt with sex as a taboo Hmm. um, was being mirrored in the way 1950s American culture was dealing with death as a taboo. Hmm. And the way you know that something is taboo is that when it comes out into the open, it comes out in a sort of sensationalized way, mm-hmm. a way that's um, that's separated from any sense of normalcy or quotidian and mm-hmm. only is sort of thought about in hypersensualized ways. You could think mm-hmm. about that in terms of pornography very easily, but in his time it was sort of um, horror books mm-hmm. and ultimately films Um, And I do think that there's still really a sense in which when we encounter death and dying, most often Mm. it's in a sensationalized way that is really divorced from any real life 
mm. emotions and relationships and mm. we get it in video games right. and movies and violence and things like that. So um, I think that there is still a sense in which we have a long way to go becoming comfortable bringing death into the open. Um, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever watched The Walking Dead? No, but, uh, but the zombie and the, yeah, um, the well, that's undead what I'm kind of. of phenomenon is another big one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what it means because I really like The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, I like zombie stuff and I don't know why. Yeah. I'm kind yeah. of wondering what's going got, on there. You got that, uh, the, you know, because it doesn't come out in any other way. So, yeah. you know, we, we feel compelled toward it in other ways. Right. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Um, so when, so a lot of your research has had to do with um, end of life care, I mm-hmm. guess. So mm-hmm. sp- focusing on that part of our culture specifically, what's the terrain these days in terms of, I guess, in the medical world or the kind of medicalization mm-hmm. of death or mm-hmm. an end of life? Yeah, medicalization of death is obviously a, a really big thing. I think most of us, when we think about bad ways to die, we think about the ICU. Hmm. We think about being sort of in an antiseptic, clinical, mechanical kind of situation in which we sort of have lost maybe functions, but we're mm-hmm. we're tied up to machines, things like that. And right. I do think that 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 happens and continues to happen. Um, but there's a broader awareness within the medical sphere that that's not the way most people want to want to end their lives and not the context. And so I think there are more and more sort of off ramps um, to take a step away from what we might call overtreatment. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniel Callahan calls it the um, brinkmanship of dying. So mm-hmm. this this sort of um, traditionally, when it comes to treating people at the end of life, there's a sense that you want to do everything you possibly can, but you don't want to do too much. But nobody really knows where the line is. So you do this kind of risky behavior of trying to push the edge as much as possible is typically as sort of a physician or caretaker um, and and sort of leaving it in the patient's hands when to say no. Um, but then, of course, none of us knows when to say no. And when the doctor right. says we could do this, you say, well, OK, you know, so yeah. um, it's really hard to sort of step away from that um, inertia and momentum that leads towards overtreatment still. But, you know, hospice and palliative care are huge areas of medicine that are continuing to grow. And I think one of the issues is trying to find ways to make sure that they're sort of properly remunerated and that there's, you know, ways for that kind of medicine to be incentivized in our um, insurance schemes and, mm-hmm. you know, health, uh, public policy, um, things like that. Um But yeah, I mean, when I talk to my students, um, I mean, the other sort of thing with the terrain, this is new to me, uh, having just moved to Oregon, um, Mm -hmm. where death with dying and death or death Death with dignity, dignity, sorry, and, um, you know, aid in dying has been a legal practice for a very long time now. And is is very much the way my my students, for the most part, sort of assume things are and should be. And um, coming from a place in the country where that's that's not the case and it's not sort of legal mm-hmm. has has been a really interesting sort of teaching opportunity yeah. for me and to talk with my students about this in our ethics class uh, has been really fun and and eye-opening to me. But, you know, end-of-life um, processes of assisted suicide and mm-hmm. aid in dying and euthanasia and those questions are very much on the table, I think, for a lot of people because nobody wants to do the overtreatment thing. Nobody right. wants to medicalize death. And there's this assumption that, you know, this is the only surefire way to avoid it. Mm-hmm. Of course, I don't think that that's true. Right. But. Well, I'm interested in the in the difference you describe in, say, teaching students because I assume you're talking about Fox students, right? Yeah, so yeah, of course. many of whom would be maybe Christian, at least mm-hmm. in some sense. But you're saying that they're they're very friendly with this idea of death with dignity. And what do you think it is? Like, what? How are they thinking about death in a way that's different from how you have been thinking about it mm-hmm. or would think about it? Like what is, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like what assumptions mm-hmm. are they making or yeah. how is it being framed mm-hmm. in their mind where they think, you know, this is fine, this is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the assumptions that is invoked a lot has to do with sort of nobody should be able to tell you okay. how you how your life should, die, should end, um, what kind of medical care you should receive. There is this sort of libertarian streak mm-hmm. um, that's very that's very present, and you know, I I very much am 
in favor of autonomy in the medical sphere. And I think that, you know, bygone years, the paternalism of medicine was way over rampant. Mm -hmm. And it was actually the case that if you had cancer or you had a terminal diagnosis in the 1950s, you had about a 50% chance that your physician would even tell you. Um, and Whoa. many times they wouldn't tell the patient that they had cancer. They might tell the family, you know, that sort of thing. So this is, you know, that's... things that we take completely for granted wow. were not always the case. And I, and I'm, I think that that's a good thing. And yet one of the assumptions around that is that, um, really anything a patient wants to have right. in a medical sphere should happen. Huh. Um, there's the assumption that, uh, patients are consumers and that doctors right. are providers. And then that's mm -hmm. the sort of uh, relationship that obtains between them. And so when a physician would say, no, that's not appropriate, it would be an imposition of one's morals on somebody else. Um, and that's, that's a big part of the discussion. Um, the other big assumption that I'm noticing has to do with um, just the assumption that when you're at the end of your life, it's going to be terrible. Hmm. That if you are old and you have a terminal diagnosis, that you are almost certainly going to have pain mm -hmm. that is right. um, unbearable and unrelenting mm -hmm. and that you're going to lose all of your capacities for self-determination and independence mm -hmm. and that that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there are, there are all sorts of assumptions going into this that really, you know, as the, the leading organization that's pro-assisted mm -hmm. dying, compassion and choices you know, mm -hmm. it really comes down to those two things. It's it's mm -hmm. it should be your choice, and it is the most compassionate thing. Um, you know, I think we have to question some of those assumptions sometimes. You know, mm -hmm. there are instances where those things are true, but by and large, palliative medicine is very able to deal with pain. Okay. Um, by and large, um, it's not fun to become dependent. But there may be some good things involved in that process. Mm -hmm. um, it is not undignified to be cared for, mm -hmm. in a sense, which is something that I think us, we in America, really struggle with. Yeah. So this idea of being self-made and independent yeah. as the source of our worth and our value and dignity. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the things I'm noticing. It makes for really good discussions yeah. though, in the classroom. Well, I, I'm really interested in that last point that you just brought up, that Maybe in America, there's a particular sense in which our value or worth or dignity is defined by being independent and self-determining and active. Um, and that seems to me like a very different understanding than, I don't know, like the Christian vision. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I guess when when you bring particularly a Christian lens into this and a Christian understanding, how would you push back against some of those assumptions, like especially the one you mentioned that um, it's bad to become dependent mm -hmm. or it's bad to rely on others or it's undignified, right? Mm -hmm. Like how would you, I guess, reframe that from a Christian mm -hmm. understanding? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, um, so there's a, a Christian ethicist, uh, contemporary uh, thinker, Stanley Hauerwas, mm -hmm. you know, who, who talks a lot about how our ethos is, is kind of driven by a couple of things. One is we want to get out of life alive. That's mm -hmm. that's one of his terms. Uh, and then the other term is, um, the other thing he talks about is that the Christian life is in a sense about learning how to live out of control. Yes. Uh, and so there's, mm -hmm. this, there's this idea that, you know, and, and this all came to the fore for me when I started writing about this because mm -hmm. I... I became interested in death, not directly, but through an experience of illness. Mm -hmm. um, and I was diagnosed with cancer early on in my, um, my doctoral studies and wow. began to, was, I'm fine now, but, you know, mm -hmm. had to go through treatment while I was thinking about issues of life and death and sickness. So um, you had, had you already chosen that focus before your diagnosis? No, okay, no. no. So, so it came I was going to go do something else completely. And then hmm. I was teaching bioethics, um, as a, as a teaching assistant. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would, um, talk to students at 1 PM, 2 PM and 3 PM on Friday afternoon. And then I'd walk down to the cancer center and get my wow. chemotherapy infusion and then go home and like zonk out with chemo brain for the weekend and then start it all over. And one of the things I started wrestling with was this idea of control and the yeah. way in which our sort of the limitations of our bodies, when we bump up against them, challenge our notions that we've always been in control and we will yes. always be in control. And 
for me and my wife, we were, we didn't have any kids yet, but we were thinking like, oh, maybe we want to have kids. Mm -hmm. But we had a five-year plan in place. Mm -hmm. We would be married for five years and (laughs) then we would have our kids. And then like year four, this happened. And Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, we may never be able to have kids. Maybe we weren't in control the same way we thought. And so what does that mean for our faith life? What does that mean for how we think about where God is in all this and, you know, how we rely on him? And, um, so it became intensely personal, but through this idea of control and what does it mean that we can control certain things, but we can't ultimately control control everything. Right. And that's the place where faith comes in. Yeah. That's the place where trust comes in. And ultimately, death signals the limit of our control. Hmm. It's the ultimate limit. It's the thing that we can never and will never be able to fully control. And so it wow. comes back into our life as sort of a, you know, insofar as we're aware of that, we may also start to notice the other things that um, we may have to trust God in and that that's okay and that's actually good for us. And so, you know, this idea of control versus trust, I think, also plays out in our relationships with each other. The assumption that we live our best life when we are fully in control right. is one that comes very natural to many of us, but it leaves out some very key parts of what it means to be human, what yeah. it means to um, to ultimately, I think, you know, um, accept what's outside of our control as a gift. Yeah. And I think that that's a big sort of Christian teaching. Mm-hmm. Creation itself right. is a gift, right? And it's to be received in that posture. And, and it's only in receiving it in that posture that we can treat it as what it really is. Yeah. And to the degree that we see creation itself simply as resources for us to do whatever we want to do with, we're misusing it. Mm-hmm. We're not seeing properly. Yeah. So, yeah, this idea of control and independence, I think, um, is one that, you know, the for me, I've learned to see the basic spiritual impulse behind Christianity as Mm. one of recognizing and appreciating what it means to be dependent, not just in my relationships, but on God ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be so fundamental to a Christian understanding and just a Christian way of living, right? Like that, Mm -hmm. that word receive that you talked about, it Mm -hmm. just seems like that trust and receptivity and that have, like, I guess having an, I guess more of an ethic of control and self-reliance, that seems like that would be a pretty significant barrier Mm -hmm. um, between the soul and God. Um, And so in a strange way, I think suffering and death can be this way of God. God can work in those things to bring us around to that posture of Mm -hmm. trust in Mm -hmm. him in a way that, that maybe can't happen in other ways. Um, like a few years ago, my my grandpa, who I was pretty close to, he died in 2017. Um, and I was pregnant with my third kid at the time, and so I couldn't go see him. And there was, he had, you know, he was kind of declining. It wasn't mm-hmm. this illness per se. Um, but there was a period in the summer where he was really thinking about taking his own life. And I think it was this effort mm-hmm. to have control over. And he was still living at home. You know, he wasn't in you know, like debilitating pain. Of course, mm-hmm. I'm sure he was in a certain amount of pain, but, um, and at, at, there was a point where he was like, had like a, like a loaded gun in his walker just to kind of like have it around mm-hmm. as this option. Um, and I just remember at the time, like praying a lot about, I just didn't want him to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I think there's like this, there's like this dance between the soul and God and I think if we choose to cut that off prematurely, then we we cut off the opportunity for God to work in our lives. And my grandpa was like, you know, an agnostic slash atheist. I mean, my last conversation with him, I told him I was praying for him. And he was like, well, you know, if I believed, I'd be praying for you too, you know. Mm-hmm. But then, so he chose, so he chose, he did not kill himself. He did not take his own life. And he, he died in December. And he actually had like after that, kind of time in the summer when he almost killed himself, he, there was this kind of like rebound period where he felt a lot better. And Mm -hmm. he had these like last couple of really good months Mm -hmm. before his final decline in December. Um, And in December, 
he, like for the last few days of his life, he lost the ability to speak. But before that, like the only thing he wanted, he wanted these old, he was Southern. He wanted these old, like traditional kind of Southern hymns played, like mm -hmm. um, Come As You Are and Oh Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And even, even though he had lost the ability to speak, he like wanted just to hear that music. And I, I don't know, when I heard that, I held on to that as this like, I don't know, this sign that there was something in him in that experience of dying that was turning toward God, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't, it, you know, whatever happened then it was this like wordless communion between him and God. Mm -hmm. But I just think if he had taken matters into his own hands and decided I want to die, you know, I want to have control of my mm -hmm. own death then that process of of dying and that turning to God that I think was happening could not have happened, mm -hmm. right? And so sometimes I think about the moment of death and how much God can work in that mm -hmm. final moment when we're, like you said, really pushed to the limit or we're like faced mm -hmm. with the myth that we can be our own God, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and I mean, what that beautiful story just makes me think about is that you can never know what meaning a moment of life can have, yeah. you know? And it's not to say that the answer is to extend life as long as possible, because that kind right. of has its own That's issues and it's not mm -hmm. sort of a worship of sort of vitalism in and of itself, mm -hmm. but sort of a ho holding open of the possibility um, that life can be meaningful even in the midst of decline and suffering. And um, I think we, we so often just, you know, um, flippantly say things like life becomes meaningless in such and such situation or, or, you know, suffering can't have meaning or those sorts of things. Um, the other thing your story reminds me of is by and large, people who obtain, um, I don't remember the statistics on this, but last time I looked at it, um, by and large, people who obtain um, prescriptions for life-ending barbiturates never actually end up taking them. Really? Um, and part of what's interesting about this is when you ask, survey people who seek out physician-assisted suicide or mm -hmm. aid in dying and ask them why, the number one reason is not pain and suffering. And it's uh, it's not, you know, um, you know, fear of the unknown, but it's the fear of being out of control. That's yeah. the number one thing that's cited. And so there is this sense, it's kind of like a Zen thing where many people who obtain the, the prescription hold on to it as sort of a, you know, just right. this sense this of, you know, you have this, you yeah. know, you always have this option, hmm. um, even though you never really maybe intend to use it or or want to hmm. in, per se. And so, you know, your story of your grandfather with his pistol on his walker, you know, I think is, is, a, is, is very yeah. much in that, in that spirit. Right. Um, and yet, you know, what does it, what does it mean to be able to let go of that, yeah. you know, that basic control and control isn't bad. And I, and this is where it gets really tricky because obviously we also have responsibility and we mm -hmm. have technologies that allow us to do all sorts of amazing things. And, right. um, we are thankful for medicine by and large and yeah. what it allows us to achieve. And so, um, you know, this is where it gets, when we talk about it in ethics classes like mine, sometimes people just want the right answer hmm. of what's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. But oftentimes what it comes down to is sort of, well, what is your posture? Hmm. And that's not to justify anything based on your posture, but it's to say that's a morally relevant part of the discussion. Is What do you mean by posture? Well, what is your... Um, you can exercise control by ending your life or by extending it. Hmm. But your basic posture in that sense is being in control, in control mm -hmm. to be, you know, we might sort of theologize it and to say to be like God, sick at deus, right. and, mm -hmm. you know, to to be the center of your own world, um, to be independent in a, in a way that we sort of think God is independent, right? Um, and yet um, you can also sort of end a treatment in a, in a manner that's, um, sort of open, um, or you can pursue treatment in a manner that's open mm -hmm. to whatever God might have. Yes. You can do both right. in faith. Right. Um, and so, you know, from, I think from a Christian ethics point of view, you know, the, the sort of 
the heart matters. It doesn't justify everything, but it's, yeah. you know, what is going on there at a, at a deep spiritual level. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I see what you're saying. I mean, you could, you could take this idea of, I don't know, receptivity to an extreme where it's like, oh, you know, like I have cancer, so I'm not going to mm-hmm. do anything about it. Exactly. Right. Because there yeah. is a sense in which, um, we are also endowed with gifts like reason and, um, that have enabled us to develop technologies and to, um, and treatments and that fighting for your life, you mm-hmm. know, is also mm-hmm. a good thing and mm-hmm. a valiant thing. Um, yeah. I wonder about like, uh, grieving as well. Like how, what, mm-hmm. I guess what we should do <laughs> after death mm-hmm. or, you know, after someone who's died. Right. Um, so this is, so to use my grandpa as an example again. So I went so he died in December and then I went, it wasn't really his funeral because he donated his body to science. So I never saw his body. Like mm-hmm. I never, the last time I saw him was like almost two years before he died. So, and when I went to his most memorial service, it was in like a, like a hotel ballroom kind of setting. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, and then, you know, there was music and people sharing stories about him. And so that was, there was meaningful in that way, but I think I there's there's a way in which I wasn't able to grieve for him because his body was never present. Mm-hmm. It it felt like this abstract thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was it, it took longer for me to even accept the reality of his death. Um and then I would contrast that with my my friend you know, you know Javier mm-hmm. as well like who died this summer. Um and he you know he we we were able to have like the full meal deal mm-hmm. with his um, which is amazing that he, I mean, there's so many ways you can see God working, you know, in retrospect, like, so he died in June and it was this, this moment of like the COVID thing had kind of quieted down enough for us mm-hmm. to even be, even be right. able to yeah. have a large gathering. Like mm-hmm. it was just this, this kind of eye of the storm in a way. Um, but we, there was a, there was a vigil, there was a funeral with the body present and there was a burial and, um, I had never experienced that kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't know. I remember the priest talked about it as almost like, you know, there's this work that we have to do now, this mm-hmm. liturgy, mm-hmm. right? Like we actually have to do this work of, of grieving and honoring Javier um, and being able to do that work and being able to like see his body. And it just, it was such a different experience mm-hmm. of grieving someone who had died. There was so much more cathartic and concrete and beautiful. I don't know. It's yeah. so hard to explain, but yeah. it's really changed the way that I think about, like now I think about things like mm-hmm. that. I think about like, what do I want to happen <laughs> after I die? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm like, yeah, I want a vigil. You know, mm-hmm. I want, I want people if it's possible to be able to sit with my body for as long as they need to, mm-hmm. you know, like, cause that, that was, that was something that was really meaningful for me. Um, but I don't know. So what are some of your yeah. thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I love that you, you bring this up. Um, I would teach a class in the religious studies department in, on religious ethics, uh, on death and dying in my previous uh, spot. And one of the things I had students do was to write their own funeral service uh, to get them thinking about like what happens communally when we die. And Mm -hmm. in a sense, who is the funeral for? Is it for the person who's died or is it for the people who are, who remain? Um, And it's a big, you know, question for me um, thinking about what is the work to be done and how do our community um, or lack of communal Mm. um, responses inhibit the work that is to be done? Um, I mean, so it's in the, in the literature on death and dying, you know, often people will talk about the way dying changed with the advent of modernity and modern medicine. And one of the big things is it moved into the hospital and it moved out of the home and it became something that was sort of divorced from the rest of um, people's relationships. And, and in particular children Mm -hmm. would not be um, present when somebody died or to see their body, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. And so that's, that's one thing that I think most of us have experienced, you know, I've never really seen, 
um, somebody at their deathbed or anything like that. Um, In um, the Middle Ages, there's a historian named Philippe Ari who writes about um, what he called tamed dying or tamed death. Mm. And tamed death for him was death that was... um, that was met within a context of choreographed and well-known liturgical responses within a community. And what made death tamed in that sense is that when it came, it was, it was familiar and people, I mean, people knew what to do, Mm. right? They knew what to do when death was coming, when it was drawing near, there were, there were handbooks that you could read, these sort of mm-hmm. Ars Moriendi, uh, The Art of Dying handbooks that were wildly popular in the Middle Ages and, and sort of outlined a, a communal choreographed kind of um, back and forth. There, were, there was a role for the person who was dying who would you know, call people in and make amends and then there would be liturgies to be said and the, the priest would have a role and other people right. would have a role and... Um, and then when somebody had, had died, people knew how to respond. And, and really, we have nothing like that today. And, and there's all sorts of reasons why having to do with sort of illness trajectories and how people die, mm-hmm. um, what people die of, and how sort of our technologies play a role in that. And then the sort of pluralism of, of our life where we don't have these sort of, um, we don't have scripts anymore yeah. to know what to do. And, and so it what you're describing that Javier's, you know, funeral and memorial and burial was a preservation of a sort of script that had, has been brought through and has continued to be observed that allows people to have sort of a role and to, to do something together. Um, I think about it, you know, I theologian, but religious studies kind of perspective as well. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's sort of, you know, what are our rituals doing yeah. Is, a, is a big question. And, and one of the things that I think rituals do is allow us to um, have answers to life's deepest questions ready to hand without having to think about them. They're mm-hmm. sort of inscribed on us through the practices that we do. And one of the answers to death is that it doesn't ultimately rupture community and it doesn't threaten right. all meaning. And that's what a funeral does is it reinstates like we're here together. Right. And this doesn't ultimately undo the meaning of all that we thought was important. And we can hold this together. I'm, I'm sort of struck by it's the last example I'll give, but, um, in the Jewish tradition, you know, um, traditionally there was, there's a practice of when somebody dies in grief and mourning, there's, you know, sitting Shiva, which is Mm. you just come and you be with somebody and you don't say anything, um, and you, you be with them for seven days is sort of the, you know, the, and is that after the person's died? That's after somebody's died. Yeah. And it, it kind of comes from the book of Job and yeah. that's what his friends came and did at the beginning before they opened their yeah. fat mouths and started trying <laughs> to like explain everything. everything. Uh, but you know, this sort of sense of, you know, we're here with you. And, but then there's, there's a number of prayers mm-hmm. that people who are grieving and in grief are given to say. And the one that's uh, sort of said monthly after somebody has died is really remarkable in that it it doesn't say anything about death. It's really just sort of a, oh, Lord God, you're in control and mm-hmm. um, how great you are, oh, Lord. And you're sort of restating um, your basic tenets towards God um, in the aftermath of mm-hmm. grief and mourning. And it's sort of... Uh, I think it's it's a it's a great gift to be given words to say that allow you to sort of maintain what's what's truest mm-hmm. throughout really an experience that does threaten to undo everything. That's what yeah. death sort of signals the end of all our control, but also the the potential sort of arbitrariness of all of life. So Yeah. Yeah. I think I think one of the biggest problems we have in our own day is we have no scripts and we have no um no guidance. And it it means that all the um all the sort of meaning making gets thrown back on us as individuals. Yes. And when you try to make meaning as an individual, it's, it's incredibly fragile. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily hold. Right. Yeah. And you can't make meaning when you're the one who's dead. 
Right. When you're right. the one who's dying. Right. And mm-hmm. so, um, it seems, you know, there needs to be meaning that's beyond that in order mm-hmm. for that to be meaningful. And it seems like that's a key difference maybe from say a Christian understanding of mm-hmm. death where suffering and death rather than being meaningless, which it seems like that's maybe more the kind of default, maybe like secular position, I guess, or not even a position, but just kind of a sense, Mm -hmm. like it's better to end someone's, you know, have someone have the ability to end their life early because suffering meaninglessly, like there's this, Mm -hmm. there's this kind of assumption that prevent meaningless suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Meaningless suffering. Right. But I guess in, in a Christian understanding suffering can become incredibly meaningful, like almost charged with meaning to a degree um, that that life when we're, you know, fat and happy and healthy, um, in a way that can almost be the meaning. That's when we're mm-hmm. probably more at risk for meaninglessness um, than when we're suffering and dying, mm-hmm. which is a hard sell, you know, it's <laughs> it's hard to, to especially, to, you know, 18 and 19 year olds or, or whoever, um, like our students, our dear students, to get them to think like, you know what, not that suffering can be good, right? Cause suffering is yeah, always right. an evil, mm-hmm. but it's nonetheless an evil from which good can come. And mm-hmm. I really do think that there's a way in which God can work in our suffering mm-hmm. more profoundly than he can in other ways. And I think it's because we're in, it, it like strips away the illusion that we are in control mm-hmm. and that we can rely on ourselves and that we can make our own meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, but the scripts I think are increasingly important to me. You know, I'm, I'm a Catholic. I became Catholic like seven or eight years ago. And, um, one of the things that I love about that tradition is that there's so many scripts and there's so many prayers and liturgies. You don't have to make it up. Like you can turn to it. Um, and that's been really important for me. Like a few years ago, I had a miscarriage and there was discovering that there's like this liturgy for Mm -hmm. parents who've lost a child before birth and being able to like pray that through. Like there was, that felt like just such a gift. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Because I think our, our culture doesn't really know what to do with that kind of death. Right. Because I think we're, you know, our culture is very invested in not really wanting to look seriously at, kind of the human value of unborn people mm-hmm. because there's there's so much political controversy over abortion. So miscarriage becomes this thing like, well, what do you do? Like, how do you mm-hmm. mourn, right? You're yeah. not, don't this, on one level, this, um, this being isn't supposed to really truly be a person yet. But I think any woman who's had a miscarriage knows that that's not true, mm-hmm. but there's not really a lot of space to mourn and to recognize that that death and that person. And so just having that script Mm -hmm. in that time was so immensely meaningful. Um, And it's funny, even (laughs) I remember it was not long after I became Catholic, I ran across a part of a prayer that said something like, you know, Lord, um, what was it like, save me from a sudden death. Yeah. And I remember thinking about that, like, whoa, that's such an interesting idea. And I actually like occasionally pray that now because mm-hmm. the way I think about death has really changed, I think, since becoming Catholic, because there is actually, a, you know, there's a sacrament um, for those final times. And it's, I've thought like, I want, I want to, I, I want to see death coming so I can get ready and like hand my soul over to God in this kind of like conscious way. Um, so then sometimes I think like, well, it's kind of a dangerous, <laughs> I might be accidentally praying that I like have a long and lingering illness or something, <laughs> but at yeah. the same time, like, I don't know, I think mm-hmm. about how I, what does a good death look like, right. you know? And people might say like, oh, quick and painless. And it's like, no, like to me, I want like, I want meaning. Like I want my death to be meaningful and I want to be able to be prepared yeah. for it. But maybe that's me being controlling. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, I mean, well, and I think the quick and painless answer is the one you'll get 90% of the time from students or most people, I think, would would say they want to die painlessly and in their sleep, probably. Right. Um, or doing something that they love would be the other yeah. other answer well, you Well, that's get. what like, Javier, you know, Javier what yeah, did exactly. die doing something and, he loved. And yeah. I think that, that there's obviously something very uh, beautiful and fitting about that yeah. for any individual. Um, 
you know, I think this idea of, um, you know, it's interesting, a, a quick and painless death on the one hand and a long drawn out medicalized death on the other hand, both inhibit exactly what you're talking about, which right. is being ready yeah. for the end. Um, I mean, part of the challenge with the the long drawn out dying, the medicalized dying, um, is that you just, you never know when to say someone's dying, hmm. right? I mean, when, when are we dying? Right. At right. what point are you are you dying if you have a terminal illness that's being treated and that, you know, we have machines that can keep your body warm huh. and going for a long, long time. And, um, you know, it's it's generally sort of a, you know, there's different illness trajectories, they call them. Um, and one is sort of the, the revolving door, which is somebody who has maybe like congenital heart or not congenital, but um, like COPD or like heart disease. They'll mm-hmm. they'll sort of have these. Um, these acute, you know, incidences where they end up in the hospital and then they're better, but they're a little bit worse off than before, Okay. but they're generally better. And then it'll happen again. And like one of these is going to be the thing that ends your life, but right. you never know which one. And so it's sort of like, well, when are you dying here? We yeah. don't really know. And then another more common trajectory is just a sort of slow lingering decline Yeah. in which it's not any one particular thing, but we just, we live so long now and you're sort of extreme old age. And yeah. at some point you're the cumulative nature of it all is means that your body can't repair itself or keep itself going. But, you know, when do you say goodbye in these, these Mm -hmm. moments, when do you um, prepare? Or, you know, I think that's a a real big challenge and one that this is where it's really interesting. You sort of get into um, epidemiology and how it fits Mm -hmm. into our ways of approaching death, because in the middle ages, you would often die of something that would not kill you right away. Mm hmm but also would not be long and drawn out. Um, and so like what, like what's an example? Well, like you'd, you'd get, um, like a big cut that ended up with a, you know, an infection. And so, and you had this sense that like, Oh, this is probably going to kill me. And like the end is coming or you'd get, Mm -hmm. just get sick. You'd have sort of a, an illness that would last two or three weeks. And, you know, I see. So it's not this like, it's not this like month long, year long kind of. Exactly. And that's the context in which a lot of these sort of scripts came, came about and were were developed. And, um, it's just, it's hard to, to, to do those things and to be prepared when you just don't know when to say somebody's actually dying, uh, which wow. is, you know, on the other side, maybe we're all dying all the time. As some, the, I mean, right. Know, like we all way. have a terminal illness yeah. in a way like we're mortal. Um, so are you, I recently learned that there's kind of a, a little bit of an ethical debate about the concept of brain death. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with this at all? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm interested. I know nothing, but what's controversial about, about brain death? Yeah, well, there's first of all, there's different kinds of brain death, and in sort of the early days when they were trying to figure out like, well, what role does brain death play in dying? The the big problem was mostly there was a tried and true way to know when somebody had died, and that would be there they stopped breathing, mm-hmm. so the breath had this sort of significance, um, and you know you'd put a feather over their mouth, and if they're not breathing, then they're dead, and um, mm-hmm. you know at, at some point we became able to keep breath going. Right. And so you have this technological intervention mm-hmm. and yet you're doing so artificially in a sense when um, when the person is not able to sort of on their own keep their breath. Right. Going, so it's just right? like mechanically, just mechanical, yeah. pure mechanical. And so and then there's situations in which you're sort of your inability to breathe sometimes is linked to the the sort of your brain stem no longer functioning. Right. It, it doesn't do that like regular thing, but there's other parts of your brain too that may not function. And so there, there became early on this question of, well, is it higher brain death that matters or mm-hmm. whole brain death or total brain death that, that matters. And, um, you know, the, the question here is, is the central most important thing about you, your thinking, mm-hmm. if it is, then you know, in higher brain death, you've lost all sense of self. You've lost all sense of sort of um, capacity for hmm. thinking and operating and, you know, doing all the things humans typically do, right? Except that your lower brain might be keeping your body alive. Hmm. Um, oh, interesting. So, uh, you know, ultimately, I think they came down to the sense in which it's it's really is, it's whole brain death that matters. And when your whole brain no longer is functioning, then... Um, then there is, even if we can keep your body sort of going, um, 
you don't have you've you've sort of achieved achieved death you hmm. you your your bodily functions are no longer integrated in that sense now the controversial thing still is sort of higher brain death you know when somebody um maybe is in a permanent vegetative state or when they um you know are unable to think in any cognitive fashion um you know the the sort of big question is are are, are they dead are they still there you know um mm. and that's a really complicated complicated thing um but you know, all of this really comes down to, um, I think, some deep assumptions and questions we have about what it means to live and mm -hmm. what the value of life is. And, um, you know, with, with brain death, I think it gets most controversial when technology is introduced and there's still hope for a miracle or that God can sort of bring back what's right. missing because our traditional understanding of death, meaning sort of cardiopulmonary death, mm -hmm. has not happened. I see. And yet the brain death has. And so the question is sort of, well, maybe we keep this person alive. Maybe we wait. And, and it's an incredibly sort of, you know, heart-wrenching yeah. place to be. Um, and yet I think doctors see it all the time. It's, it's sort of very yeah. common you know, very common, maybe overstating it, but right. not, not uncommon um, thing to have happen. And so does it happen that, you know, on a very rare occasion, someone comes back when there's a state of... There are cases of people coming back from permanent vegetative states, you might say, uh -huh. from higher brain death, um, sort of unexpectedly. It's very rare, but it, okay. it has happened. Yeah. So whole brain death would include the, the lower brain mm -hmm. function. So yeah. in that sense, any functioning in the body is purely mechanical. That's right. Okay. Yeah. But there might be cases where like in a vegetative state is that the higher brain's not working, yeah. but yet the, the lower brain is. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. What's your opinion on, on brain death? Well, I mean, I just, I think our technology means that, um, when death basically, I think signals when our, our body's no longer able to keep itself going. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's a sort of integrative notion of all things working together. And if there's no hope for all things working together ever again, um, and that is sort of located in the brain, mm -hmm. you know, that's sort of where that sort of integration happens. Um, then, then death has occurred by all, you know, standard measures. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think cases of permanent vegetative states are, are, different. I don't think it's fair to say that death has occurred. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I don't always think that it's necessary to continue to extend life in those situations. And so um, there is a sense when you might say, you know, we've done what we can and, you know, um, we can let this person go. We can let sort of the, the, the way in which their, you know, body is trending um, become you know, we can, we can let it happen. We can let death come. Um, and I, mm -hmm. I think that that's the challenge of our own, you know, we don't like to talk about or think about death, but we also hmm. don't know how to welcome it. Um, and so that's a real challenge as well for a lot of people. Hmm. It's an interesting idea of welcoming death, right? Like yeah. what would that, oh, what would that look like? I like that idea. Although there's also something kind of I don't know, almost like scandalous about it in mm -hmm. a way. It's mm -hmm. so counterintuitive to what mm -hmm. I think how we most often regard death. I remember once um, and in a talk you gave, you used the, I think this is the phrase you used. Um, you talked about a, a spirituality of martyrdom. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Am mm -hmm. I remembering this right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Um, because I, I'm intrigued by that idea as, as like a Christian way of living. Like what does it look like to live with a particular attitude toward death, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, I mean, what does martyr mean? It, it means witness, right? I mean, that's sort of your, your sort of your witness or your testimony is found in how you live. And, um, and yet within the early church, um, there were certain people who then were also just sort of designated as martyrs. And, and why were they designated as martyrs? Well, there were people who, who lived, um, that witness 
all the way up to the end, right? Um, and and did so in a way that their impending death or their way of death or often persecution from the outside mm-hmm. um, did not ultimately threaten their their faith or their faithfulness. And, um, you know, within this idea of martyrdom, it, it basically means that insofar as these people are to be celebrated, they're to be celebrated because there are goods that are higher than life, mm-hmm. right? And there are evils that are worse than death. There's... Um, you know, to to avoid death by giving up the good of faith or faithfulness would mm-hmm. be to basically to to place something lower above something higher, right? It would mm-hmm. be sort of disordered loves or affections or living. Um, and yet, one of the things um, Augustine says is that he he has this place, I think, in a sermon where he says, "One can be a martyr even on their deathbed." Basically, a, a sick person can be a martyr. Well, what does that mean? They're not being persecuted. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, being asked to defend their faith or die or, you know, what we might sort of typically think about sort of what martyrdom is. Well, what it means is that their their faithfulness is lived all the way up to the end. Mm. And their, their dying doesn't threaten it, doesn't ultimately undo it. And so this idea of spirituality of martyrdom, for me... Um, coming from a few different thinkers, Surveys Pinkayers is one who writes about it, but is is this notion that um, faithfulness all the way up to the end is what life is really about. Hmm. And death and dying provides sort of an avenue to live out faithfulness all the way to the end with all of its challenges, with the challenges, very real challenges of losing your independence, of right. going through pain and suffering and all these things. And yet, um, another theologian, Carl Rahner, talks about how um, this idea of martyrdom, of faithfulness all the way to the end, what that demonstrates is that the martyr not only is faithful at the end, but that faithfulness is shown to have been the what he calls the axiological principle of their life. It's sort of the, mm. that's how they lived all along. Mm. And the end of their life just sort of provided an occasion for them to to live it again, to show it. And so, you know, um, it makes us think about, well, how are we living all, all along? Are we, um, then the, the other sort of last bit, and this goes back to that notion of control that we talked about before, mm-hmm. is um, for a martyr to try to avoid death um, often would have meant for them to have tried to, in a sense, take control and try to sort of engineer another right. way for God's will to be done, right? Um, it might mean that they they sort of, you know, they deny their faith in a sense, but they know they're going to have a chance <laughs> to like come back and, you know, yeah. make things right or, you know, and so there's a very real sense in which for for the martyrs of the early church, there's a, there's a sort of giving over the control to say, well, we're not ultimately going to win in any worldly sense here. Mm-hmm. And yet God must be in control and we're sort of going to give it up to him. And so um, that sort of faithfulness to the end combined with this notion of, well, our, our point here is not to sort of ultimately bring about God's kingdom or to make everything turn out right, but is to, to simply be sort of a witness to the goodness of God. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I think about sort of martyrdom's relevance to us and how we live. It's sort of, mm-hmm. you know, the, the martyrs become for us a, a symbol of that and a witness and exemplar and yeah inspire us and i think next i think in in the course we're going to teach together in the spring um perpetua oh yes perpetual and felicitas yeah (laughs) Um, and also eusebius i think Mm -hmm. is still is still in the roster but he tells some hardcore stories of martyrs and um like polycarp's one of my favorites but it seemed like during those times of roman persecution that martyrdom became so much a part of Christian life and identity. I mean, he describes what almost sound like like martyr schools for children. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the mm-hmm. children are like kind of taught this idea of martyrdom and almost to kind of seek, not seek it out mm-hmm. in, in like a, you know, suicide by cop kind of way, but like actually preparing themselves like to probably die for the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I think it's, I think it's Eusebius who, who will sometimes describe about, um, you know, people who like joyfully like ran toward their mm-hmm. martyrdom, you know, and 
So I'm also wondering if there's, I don't know, like, is there this really like hardcore Christian understanding of death where, I mean, you can imagine someone making the argument that like, okay, well, when you have a loved one who's died in the faith, you know, they're in heaven. Like, you know, right now that they're with God, they're happier than they've ever been. They're more alive than they've ever been. So why are you sad? Like, why aren't we just, why don't, mm-hmm. why don't we have this attitude toward death of almost either radical stoicism or, or even celebration, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, guess how right. would you respond, mm-hmm. respond to that? Like, is that an, an expectation that Christians should have? Like, why, why not just see, see death as this like good thing? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that that's the, that's the, um, other side of sort of our cultural understanding is sort of maybe a celebration or a, a running up toward or a, a glorifying or glorification of, of death or even suffering. And hmm. I think that the early church really did have some, some questionable, you know, <laughs> periods with this. Um, and, you know, maybe it's understandable in a period of sort of intense persecution right. when you, when you actually don't have a lot of control and maybe there were other sort of maybe theological streams coming in and out that may have been sort of particularly sort of dualistic or thinking about sort of mm. spiritual over material and right. okay. maybe even sort of not really, um, you know, appreciating the goodness of creation itself. Um, mm. There's a um, Augustine's teacher, Ambrose mm-hmm. gave his, I think his brother died and he gave two sermons on, on death sort of one week after another and the first one was sort of a radically stoic, um, mm. you know, picture of death. And it, it can't touch us because, right. you know, as long as we're here, you know, death is in. And, you know, where, you know, where we go after we die is with God. And there is no evil in death. And then he came back the next week and was like, I, I don't think I was right in all really? that I said. And, wow. he, and, and part of what it comes down to, I think, is just sort of, well, there's just a very sort of human element here of um, we, we grieve we rightly grieve what we what we lose and that mm-hmm. death does remain an evil. It's an evil whose sting has been taken away in a sense. And so for a Christian, it can't be the ultimate evil. Mm-hmm. It can't be the ultimate bad thing. Um, and, and it ought not to necessarily um, lead us to fear. And yet, um, you know, Aquinas would say, you know, that, that heaven isn't sort of complete right now. Um, in a sense, because mm-hmm. there are souls that are with God, but they're not with their body. Yeah. And that when the souls are reunited with their body and then be with God, they'll worship God, not sort of to a fuller extent, not to not that they'll worship God more, but they'll worship him more wholly. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, I think that there's, there is a lot to continue to grieve in it. And we're very real human creatures. And yeah. um, I think that when our theology begins to feel and look inhuman, I think yeah. that's a signal to us that, that maybe we've got something something wrong. Right. Um, yeah, I think Bernard of Clairvaux talks about that, how after death, like the soul is in bliss in heaven, but yet longs to be reunited with mm-hmm. its body. And, um, which I think is just a really beautiful idea. Um, but I think sometimes I think in, sometimes you'll hear this, um, idea that like death is a natural, right? Cause there's, and this would be more kind of a secular approach of like, we shouldn't fear death. Like mm-hmm. death is part of the natural cycle of things. Like um, we don't need to pathologize it or, um, but there's a sense in which for the Christian, like death is natural, yes, but death is also very unnatural. Like death is not what we are made for. Um, we are not like other mortal creatures, um, but we have eternal souls that are made for communion with mm-hmm. God, right? Mm-hmm. And to to be separated from those with whom we have communion is, I don't know, I mean, unnatural is probably mm-hmm. not the word, but like there's something wrong with it, you mm-hmm. know, that there's something bad about it. I mean, something mm-hmm. evil about it. And that one of the things that Christ came to restore or to conquer is death. Mm-hmm. It's not just sin, but death. And, you know, even he grieved for mm-hmm. Lazarus, right? Yeah. Like he wasn't like, yeah. dun, 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 you know, like stoic Jesus, mm-hmm. like, it's okay. We'll all be resurrected one day. Mm-hmm. Chin up, Martha. You know, I mean, he's, and he even knew, I mean, I presume he knew he was going to raise Lazarus, mm-hmm. but he's still grieving. Like, it's just really incredible to yeah. see, 
to see how Christ, the conqueror of death, nonetheless, in his time on earth, is also like that's the only time he weeps, mm-hmm. right? Is when a dear friend of his dies. And so he feels it in his being, right? The wrongness of death. Yeah. So we're quickly turning this from the, the cultural podcast into the theological podcast. Which I, well, is, which you is know, really fun for me. You can't, I mean, um, yeah. you can't just separate. <laughs> sort of diving deep here. I mean, this question of sort of natural death versus unnatural death. And I mean, it's one that the, the tradition has wrestled with for, for a very long time. And it's, you know, the biblical, um, you know, the way the Bible talks about it is mixed, you know, mm-hmm. and there are all sorts of scripture verses in the Old Testament that seem to talk about death fairly unproblematically. Right, like, oh, uh, Sheol. Yeah, or, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know uh, so-and-so went down to their fathers. And, you know, right. and, and Sheol's kind of this interesting thing that, um, you know, it's kind of a, a realm of the dead, but the undead and, you know, exactly mm-hmm. what Sheol is and what it signifies. You know, one of the things about Sheol that makes it so terrible is that you're cut off from the land of the living. Mm-hmm. And there are all these rhetorical questions about Sheol in the Old Testament about, do the dead praise you, God? And when we read this from a sort of a Christian New Testament perspective, our sort of immediate impulse is like, yes. Like, right. But, but the, the answer probably, the implied answer in those scriptures was no. Like, yeah. God, you need to save us from mm-hmm. death because the yes. dead don't praise you and we want to praise yes. you, right? And, mm-hmm. and we want to stay part of this sort of worshiping community and, um, and, and then over time, you know, I mean, our, people might argue about this, but my sense of it is that over time in the, in the Old Testament, there developed a, a broader sense that God was going to do something to restore mm-hmm. the dead into fellowship with him because he had these sort of promises right. of covenantal fidelity. And right. so God has to be true to his promises, but he doesn't seem to be. So how's he going to do that? And that's mm-hmm. the context into which Jesus is born. But there is this sort of mixture of sort of like, well, in one sense, we're we're creatures, right? And creatures die, right. and we're on the firmly on the creature side of yes. the creator creature distinction, and yep. only God is sort of immortal and infinite and those sorts of things. And so, you know, we've we've talked in my theology class this year about death a little bit and fun questions about what would have happened with Adam and Eve had they not yeah. sinned, and you know, what were they sort of by nature immortal? The, mm-hmm. the early church was pretty. Um, across the board um, in union on, they were not by nature immortal. They were sort of upheld by maybe a a sort of special extra grace or, you know, donum super additum or, Mm -hmm. you know, something like that, that God was, God was upholding them above their natural state. And then they returned to their natural state Mm -hmm. when they fell into sin and ruptured their relationship with God. And um, so the question of whether death is natural is even sort of a really complicated one from the beginning. I think, you know, for me, um, it's really meaningful to me that we are sort of creatures who are by nature mortal. Yeah. And that um, we hope for immortality not in ourselves and not even in the like immortality of our souls, our sort of natural immortality, but in the fact that God relates to us and loves us and yes. will continue to love us um, beyond the end. And so, right. so that a, a, a death can become for a Christian something more than the end of all relationships. I think that's what the evil of death is in scripture is mm-hmm. um, the threat of relationlessness. Yeah. It's the threat of being cut off from the land of the living, from the worshiping community, from Yahweh, from God. Um, and yet that's what we see in scripture is not what happens when we die. Hmm. That death is our limit, but death itself is limited by God. And on the far side of death, God is faithful. And so we hope for, we hope for more. We hope that God will bring all things together and resurrect each of us into fellowship with him. Mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis has this um, great quote. He says it a bunch of different times. Um, Nothing that hasn't died will be resurrected. And that's actually kind of one of the quotes that got me started on my dissertation research is like, what does he mean by that? And what like, could that not just be like a spiritualism, but also maybe true in some deep sense that creatures, in a sense, need to die in order to be, for God to raise them up to some glorified state, that we need to have a limit and we need to be faithful to the limit, this sort of spirituality of martyrdom, in order for for God to show himself faithful and give us even more on the far side of it. 
And so, you know, there are theologians who, who would um, say that even Adam and Eve, had they not sinned, would have reached a point where they would have switched from being able to die to being unable to die. Um, that they would have been glorified at some point. And when that would be, you know, none of us know. It's all speculation, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what would it mean for them to reach an end of their mortal state and be mm-hmm. sort of transferred into an immortal state? Basically, what it would be is a death without death. It would be a, a sort of an end of their, their, they would reach their limit. And yet that wouldn't mean separation from God. It would mean being brought into a fuller relationship with God. I don't know that that's true or even mm-hmm. worth thinking about. It's all very no. speculative, but it's it to me it seems like maybe there's a, a sort of naturalness of having a limit or an end. Yeah. That even so, God can bring us through it, mm-hmm. and um, and so maybe as Christians who who believe that the sting of death is gone, even though we still experience death, we can sort of meet the end in that spirit. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like that's a good note to end on. There's something just hopeful about that, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a way in which we feel the sting of death, but also that limit is not the end, Mm -hmm. right? That limit has its own limit, Mm -hmm. just God. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about death. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. And in my experience, you know, um, you know, if you write a if you write a dissertation on on death and dying, it means you have to talk about it. And when somebody asks you what you write your dissertation on, maybe it's I don't know if it's like this with you, but um, if you say you wrote on death, people will either shut down conversation completely right away, or they'll want to talk to you for an hour oh, at man. a time. And, yeah, um, I can see that. And and so just the opportunity to be able to um, sort of unpack some of these ideas and um, you know just dwell with you in it, it's been really great. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts on your phone or computer. You can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And you can also find our playlist on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks.